Ladies and gentlemen, we take pride in presenting a thoughtful address by Ronald Reagan. Mr. Reagan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to History Uncensored. As always, I am your host, Seth Michaels. Today, we are going over episode two of Remembering Reagan. This is part of our History's Idiots podcast series. Um, and if you remember, we did two episodes of Columbus, and we're going to do three or four episodes of Reagan. It depends on how much shit I uncover when I get into scandals and corruption. Um, if I were a betting man, I'm not, but if I were, I would say that we're probably going to have four episodes of Reagan. I apologize if Reagan isn't your cup of tea, but I think it's really important for us understanding kind of today's society, where we're at, where we're going, how we got here. And it really starts with Ronald Reagan. That stupid twat has caused us so much grief over these last few years that it's kind of hard to describe. But this is History Uncensored. Let's get ready. We're going to we're going to get right into it. Episode two today is on Reaganomics. Um, and actually, before we get started here, I want to share something um, that somebody left a review. I'm going to call you out because uh, it made my week this last week. I did not do an episode, but that's because I was um, in Camp to belong which is a camp that helps reunite siblings uh, that have been separated by foster care. I was a counselor this week, and the only thing I can really say about it is it changed my life. It's an unbelievable cause, and um, if you have a chapter near you, I would really recommend looking them up because it's it's wonderful. Um, these kids deserve love, and it's just not something that they've received frequently in their life. Um, it was one of the hardest weeks of my life. But I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that when I came back and after I was gone, I, I came and checked out my reviews um, and I saw that I got a one star review, which is fine. Not every, you know, this isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea for a podcast. I get it. Um, but uh on 826, I was left a review by, I'm not going to say their name, but they're going to know if they're listening. So I, I really appreciate this. I'm really enjoying this podcast. Seth packs in a lot of information. That's true. As well as heart, also true. I, I put a lot of really hard work into each episode. Um, I love how he doesn't just focus on Western nor male history. I'm looking forward to listening to this podcast for years to come. It's simple things like that, guys that have really helped me kind of get through being a podcaster and not providing an income for my family. But I just wanted to say how much that simple message really meant to me. Um, so en enough of this wishy-washy stuff. Uh, let's get right into it. So we are back at the History's Idiots, remembering Reagan, raising Reagan, um, the puppet, the twat, the idiot, the moron. I don't care how you want to remember him. Um, I just hope that it's not in a positive light. He may have been somewhat of a good person, um, but he was definitely racist. He he may have um, instilled some confidence into the American people, but he also took away so much more than that. He took away um, some of our livelihoods. He 
imprisoned he started this trend of imprisoning just people people that didn't really deserve it uh this his war on drugs was a war on race and we're still feeling the after effects the aftershocks of that today but today we are doing something a little bit different something i haven't really covered in this mode before i guess i'll say we are doing reaganomics we're doing economics and granted i'm not and i don't have a degree in economics or anything like that but i i think i can at least give you guys the facts so you can make your own decision based on what i'm going to tell you so i say reaganomics does anybody really know what that means what the fuck is reaganomics um and if you were to go on my website, you could see that I have like probably about like 30 different resources, different peer reviewed sources for this episode. Um, there was a lot that went into it. So I definitely recommend going out and checking some of these things out because it's pretty damning when you when you go in and you look at the evidence. Um, I'm not just making this stuff up. I've had a couple of people kind of attack me. You're just doing this on hearsay and uh, I, I promise I'll never do an episode just on hearsay. All of my topics are thoroughly researched. Well, let's get into it. What the fuck is Reaganomics? And I'm going to start with a quote from Ronald Reagan himself. This administration's objective will be a healthy, vigorous, growing economy that provides equal opportunities for all Americans with no barriers born of bigotry or discrimination. Ha! Putting America back to work means putting all Americans back to work or imprisoning them. That works too. Ending inflation means freeing all Americans from the terror of runaway living costs. All must share in the productive work of this new beginning and all must share in the bounty of a revived economy. That was a quote directly from Ronald Reagan. And if you listen to the last episode, you would know that he is definitely not for providing equal opportunity for all Americans. It's just not in his endgame. Reagan's remembered for a booming economy. I don't understand why. Like, tell me why I couldn't find that support, find really much information that supported that argument. Um, especially when you begin looking at the hard numbers. When we take that hard look, when we take it, at, at nothing really holds up. I shouldn't say not nothing. Being wealthy holds up. Um, being extremely wealthy has only gotten better since Reagan. The inequality gap has increased. The Gini coefficient, which I'll talk about later, has increased. Um, America, the United States, has become a much worse place to live for people in the lower quintiles lower percentages um, and it really all started with reagan you can look at all of my documents it's all there and that wealth those wealthy people it just basically starting in 80 81 pretty much every graph that i have every chart that that i've seen starts showing that the um the share of income, uh, income inequality, wage inequality really begins right in that time. And what I mean by that is um, all of the numbers start pointing up for the top 1%. Uh, 
um, or even the top, I should say, like 20% if we're splitting it in the five equal portions. Um, and the lower percentage, the lower quintiles start trending down. In real money during the 80s, people in the lower percentages made less money than they did the decade before. That's insane. That doesn't happen. Right? That just... And then when you start getting above 50%, it starts going up. And when you start getting above, you know, 80%, it, it's a significant increase in the amount of overall wealth that's been accumulated by that group. It's just pretty crazy. Um, and that that hasn't really stopped moving much, you know. It's had a few dips here and there. Um, but... Basically, since the 80s, that gap has been increasing and increasing and increasing. And as the richest people become richer, coincidentally, the poorer people are becoming poorer. I guess just an observation that, that I've made um, backed up by the, the data that's available. But here we are. You know, they... Like I said, they're literally that top group or one of the only groups that saw their wages increase in the 80s. Everyone else, fuck them. They don't need money. All that money up top will just kind of fall down to the bottom. Newsflash. That shit doesn't work. It didn't work then and it sure as hell is not working now. I'm not here to argue politics. I'm just here to tell you about the facts. Um, the historiographical conjecture that ruins the image you hold in your mind of history. So enjoy this episode of Reaganomics as I tear down that fucking wall like an East German trying to escape. He's remembered for all of the wrong reasons, and I see us on a similar path, but we need to stand up, we need to make a change, or nothing will change. Sorry, guys. Reaganomics. I went on a bit of a bender there, rant, whatever you want to call it. Um, let's get back to the topic at hand, explaining to you in the best way possible, or at least the one that I think makes the most sense, um, kind of, of this skullduggery uh, that, that happened, this, this, these lies, um, the way that this has been explained over and over and over again. That this is a good thing, uh, supply-side economics, um, Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, how, what, whatever the fuck you want to call it, I don't care. Um, it's not good. Reaganomics is a type of economy, economic policy that's based in myth. This idea that you can increase spending and lower taxes and somehow the economy will get a boost and you'll erase the national debt is literal lunacy. Too much government was the problem. Too many taxes. Too much regulation on banks and places of business. The individual has the right to their own path without government. Policies standing in the way of achieving their dreams. Now there's something Reagan said. All of it sounds great in practice, doesn't it? No wonder he won a second term. It seemed like he was doing good. Don't worry, I'm going to go over each of the Reagan's administration's legacies and trying to decipher the data and present it to you in hopefully meaningful way. We know what they were trying to accomplish, but let's discuss the reality of his policies and their impact. Here is what Reagan's policies did. 
they reduced the top marginal income tax bracket from 70% to 28%. Now, I agree, 70% is a bit egregious, but so is 28%. Lowered corporate income tax from 48 to 34%. During Reagan's presidency, the federal debt held by the public nearly tripled in nominal terms from $738 billion to $2.1 trillion. This led to the U.S. moving from the world's largest international creditor to the world's largest debtor nation. Reagan described the new debt as the greatest disappointment of his presidency. The federal deficit as a percentage of GDP rose from 2.5% of GDP in the fiscal year of 1981 to a peak of 5.7 in 83 Total federal outlays averaged 21.8% of GDP from 81 to 88 it was the highest of any president from Carter through Obama. Federal revenues averaged 17.7% of GDP from 81 to 88 versus the 74 to 80 of 17.6. Federal individual income tax revenues fell from 8.7% GDP in 80 to the very bottom of 7.5% of GDP in 84. Really what those numbers are saying is that the economy wasn't what I would call booming. Um, that the the numbers that we hear that I'm about to show, share with you were a little bit conflated uh, and there were reasons behind them. Here are the numbers that we hear pretty frequently in regards to Reagan's presidency. 20 million new jobs were created. Do you know what one of the reasons those new jobs were created was? It was women entering the workforce. Do you know why women had to enter the workforce? Were basically forced to enter? Um, beside the fact that their husbands were being imprisoned. Um, beside the fact that they were husbands and um, brothers were fathers were making less money than they were the decade before. Women had to enter the workforce because... Families could no longer afford to live on a single income like they had before. All of those reasons accumulated and women entered the workforce in droves during the 80s, which is phenomenal. I'm glad women entered the workforce. It's created more equality, granted over time, and it's still not equal. I think in the future I'm probably going to do an episode on... Um, wage inequality between men and women... Uh, in the United States, kind of get some of those myths out of the way and so on and so forth. But so 20 million new jobs were created. Like I said, a lot of that was um, a, a lot of that was women entering, you know, the workforce as well as uh, the the huge influx that always happens right after a recession ends. Um, inflation dropped from 13.5% in 1980 to 4.1% by 88. Uh, that had more to do with the Fed than um, Reagan's economic policies. Unemployment fell from 7.6% to 5.5%, which again sounds really good. Uh, but when you are imprisoning, you know, an additional 3 to 5% of the base population, yeah unemployment's going to fall. The net worth of families earning between twenty and 50000 annually 
grew by 27%. Um, they were also borrowing more money to achieve that. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on. Uh, first, I want to cover debt and government expenditures. Because Reagan, he, he wanted to... Reagan really wanted to decrease the spending of the federal government. Um, and he wanted to, dec by doing that, decrease the total federal debt and year-over-year -year deficits. By... 1980, when Reagan was running for president, he hammered at the, the deficit of Jimmy Carter, the $75 billion deficit. Um, what happened in the following years is kind of a lesson in humility and pride that has irreversibly damaged the United States. What I mean by that, in the 1980s, Democrats and Republicans were getting pretty upset by the accruing federal deficit in the United States. By 81, the federal debt was $998 billion. 1989, the federal deficit was $2.86 trillion. Fuck. We were doing pretty good up, up to that point. Well, in 1981, Reagan submitted his tax cut. Uh, 1982, Reagan increased spending. 1983, at the height of the recession, the job uh, at the height of the recession, jobless rate was almost 11 percent. In 84, an increased defense spending. And when you look at the numbers for defense spending, it's almost like they weren't spending on real things, like tangible things that that really made a difference in the in the U.S. military. Um, There's this huge buildup, and there wasn't a lot of evidence suggesting that it should happen was russia building up around the same time yeah but when you look at the economics it, everything was pointing to um you know their their downfall they're they're running out of money eventually and that's what happened they ran out of money simple as that uh, and we still were increasing our defense spending 1987 we had the market crash the fed raised the rates in 88 and in 89, we had the Bush budgets as well as a new SNL crisis that I'll go over later. Really what happened is we got fucked um, $998 billion to $2.86 trillion. Woo! Reagan. What the heck? That's, and that's a total increase of 186% in the, in the debt. Um, yikes. Here are some examples of other presidents will use only times of peace because wartime revenue is kind of always increased. FDR during peacetime, 113%. Um, that was also during the time of the Great Depression. Um, it was also during the greatest increase in infrastructure spending the United States had ever seen. And still, only 113%. And that was through 1933 to 1941, his first, some of his first few terms. Eisenhower saw an increase of just 8.6% during one of the greatest economic time periods in the history of the United States. That's phenomenal. Lyndon B. Johnson, 15.7 from 63 to 69. And that included some defense spending to start covering the Vietnam War. 
Heck, even during the entire time the United States was in the Vietnam conflict, the debt increase as a percentage was just 68%. President Clinton... 31.65, 1993 to 201. President Bush, 105.1% from 2001 to 2009. Do you guys see what I'm talking about? The way he ran the federal government increased our debt as a nation by an unprecedented amount. No president has increased the debt more in history of the United States as a percentage over their tenure other than FDR, and he had to fight World War II and the Great Depression. I mean, it's pretty fucking simple, huh? Um, he increased spending and cut taxes and that's exactly what happens when you do that and then after this after I get done with the deficits and stuff I think we're going to take a break because there's just a, there's a lot that I'm throwing at you guys um, but here here's lots of numbers and stuff and, and I don't want you to fall asleep government spending with the tax cuts of 1981 and the Tax Reform Act of 1986, I'd accomplished a lot of what I'd come to Washington to do. But on the other side of the ledger, cutting federal spending and balancing the budget, I was less successful than I wanted to be. This was one of my bis- biggest disappointments as president. I just didn't deliver as much to the people as I'd promised. No shit, Reagan. The federal government spending was just under $600 billion. In 1989, the last year of Reagan's administration, government spending was almost up to $1 trillion, $990 billion. Basically, in every sense of the word, Reagan failed to, li- to deliver on his promise to reduce government um, spending and decrease federal expenses. Not only did he fail to reduce and cut spending, he even expanded some government programs, including Medicare and a large increase in government spending on the military. Again, any any way you look at the numbers, it just it, it paints a pretty vivid picture. Inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman, said Ronald Reagan. And he's right, inflation was crazy when Reagan took office. Even though he vowed to reduce inflation, he couldn't really take the credit. On the verge of disaster, Paul Volcker raised the Fed funds rate past eighteen percent. Triggered a recession and a high jobless rate, but leveled out the ludicrous level of inflation. I couldn't find any policy that Reagan had implemented that would have had a correlative effect on inflation. He just, he, he might have taken credit for it, but he shouldn't have. That's, that's just not what happened. Let's define budget deficit. The amount by which a government spending is more than the money it receives. It's pretty simple. Nice, simple, love it. Except it's not. The deficit since Reagan has been a pretty complacent $200 billion per year. That's significantly higher than Jimmy Carter's $74 billion deficit. You know, the one Reagan was all upset about. And thus, during Reagan's presidency, enter supply-side economics. It's a macroeconomic theory arguing that economic growth can be most effectively created by lowering taxes and decreasing regulation. And that's where the Laffer curve comes through, which really has no valid proof. Um, It's a theory that states that lower tax rates boost economic growth. It underpins the supply-side economics, Reaganomics, and um, Tea Party's economic policies. It... It's said that Arthur Laffer developed it in 79. Really, it was based on um, some really ancient writings. And to a point, it's 
it's true. At, at a certain point, the too much taxation becomes too much of a burden on the populace. But when you decrease the top marginal tax rate from 70 to 28%, and then from corporation tax from you know 45 to the 30s, you're putting, that's a big dent of money that you're non, no longer receiving. And again, most of the tax cuts were for the wealthy. And what happened during this time and what, we see, what we've seen every year since is the wealthy have become richer because of some of these loopholes and deregulations that Reagan put in um, to our economic system that we haven't been able to recover from. It's been literally disastrous for the lower percentage of the population in the United States. So before we take a break, I just want to recap just a bit. Reagan's presidency didn't really go as planned for him. And granted, they hid behind the numbers very well, those positive ones. You know, the 20 million new jobs, um, inflation rate dropped, unemployment fell, so on and so forth. The rest of the numbers really start showing a different story. And we're not even all the way through like anything yet. I mean, we're just talking about government spending at this point. We haven't hit on any of the really big problems, um, at least as I see it. Let's go a little bit more into um, deficits and the trade deficit and kind of go over the difference between uh, Keynesian theory and supply side economics. I'm going to bore you guys to death for a few more minutes. So hang with me. You guys are fucking awesome. Here we go production or, or the supply of goods and services is most important in determining economic growth. Supply side theory is typically held in stark contrast to Keynesian theory, which among other facets includes the idea that demand can falter. So if lagging consumer demand drags the economy into recession, the government should intervene with fiscal and monetary stimuli. This is basically how the government has responded to every recession since forever. Oh, yep, things are going a little bit bad. We should ease up, we should provide a stimulus, and then things slowly or quickly start to recover. It's one of the biggest distinctions. A peer Keynesian believes that consumers and their demand for goods and services are key economic drivers, right? We've learned that from the very beginning. Supply and demand um, drive the economic market. That's what we grew up learning. Well, a supply sider believes that producers and their willingness to create goods and services set the pace for, of economic growth, which might be a really good thing. Well, some of the, the, the problem that you have for producers at that point is if you start producing too much of something, well, the, the price goes down, your margin goes down. Well, then the producers are losing more money. And if you've eventually you've created too much of that product um, or too many uh, of whatever it is you're producing, you are literally just throwing money down the drain if you're not relying on supply and demand. And supply and demand, you can get in trouble, right? If, if there's a hike in demand for a product or whatever. But not nearly as much trouble as just producing and producing and producing and spending money frivolously um, uh, on producing these goods because what will happen is you'll end up eventually getting this backlog of items, you, you, this backlog. Well, it gets to a certain point, your warehouses are full and you literally can't produce anymore. What happens when you can't produce anymore? You sell it off for the cheap, you liquidate it, or 
um, because you don't have any more room for it and there's no need to make anymore because you've already made enough. You start laying workers off. It happens pretty much every time. And that's one of those hidden things behind supply side economics. Let's build up our supply of stuff. Well, again, the, the problem is we don't always need that amount. Um, and it could be really damaging to a company to do that. And without getting into advanced economic theories, suffice it to say that cutting taxes on the rich, cutting taxes on corporations does not show correlative evidence um, to increased economic growth. Now, if he had gone from like the 70% to let's say like 55% as opposed to the 28%, he probably would have seen pretty significant economic growth and would have been able to cut through that deficit. But by bringing it down to 28%, uh, he really hindered the economy. Perhaps in an ideal world where companies use the revenue on growth, research and development, and increasing labor ownership, we would see an increase. But that's not what happens. Heck, what's happening now are companies are taking their excess wealth and investing it in shares of their own stocks because they're afraid of what's about to happen. They're not investing it into research and development. They're not investing investing it into um, new new divisions, new labor fields, new places um, to develop economic growth. It's kind of halted, um, and that's when you get a recession. And as a reminder, it was called the supply side effect. And above all, it offered a powerful new political weapon to Republicans. It meant that the GOP was no longer the party of grim and unpopular naysayers, constantly telling the Democrats that the nation couldn't afford their new spending programs. Now, Republicans had goodies of their own to hand out to voters, lower taxes, which the Republicans said would pay for themselves mysteriously. Republicans promised the American people that for $1 in taxes, you could still get $1.25 in government services. How in the right fuck does that work? One last portion on the deficit, and that's the trade deficit. The merchandise trade deficit is tied in with the federal deficit because the latter drives up interest rates, which in turn attract foreign capital. Basically, as a consequence of the developments where um, increasing the value of the U.S. dollar and making exports expensive, the imports cheap. As a consequence of those, uh, the merchandise trade deficit has gone from $24.2 billion in 1980 to, in 1986, $169.8 billion. That's huge. By, by making those imports cheap and uh, increase the value of the U.S. dollar, it really ended up hurting the trade deficit. We started importing more than we were exporting, and that's never good for the economy. Another hit to the deficit. It had been a, a, a major devastation uh, as to parts of the domestic economy, particularly in the goods-producing areas such as agriculture and manufacturing. Well, all of these companies were producing so much stuff. And then it became really expensive to export it. So they were sitting on it and then it was, it just destroyed major swaths of the manufacturing economy in the United States. As I mentioned earlier, the ultimate consequence was that the United States had gone from being an international creditor to an international debtor in the space of just a few years. 
Over $140 billion in international assets had been dissipated, having been used mostly to finance a domestic consumption boom. So that's pretty shit. So what we're going to do now, after I laid down the facts on the deficits and debt uh, and why Reagan and the administration were fucking twats in regards to it, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about deregulation of the banks um, and the problems that created. So enjoy this time. We're going to take a brain break. Um and I just want you guys to think about maybe your weekend or the last week and think about it. Was there anything that you did to help somebody out? Um, it could have been a little thing, opening up the door, saying hi to somebody who was having a bad day. Um, maybe you gave your, one of your family members a hug, something like that. Uh, just think about that. And if you can't think of an instance where that happened, try and do a little bit better this week. Uh, all right, brain break in five. Four, three, two, thought about some good things well i want to get right back into this before i make this an hour and a half episode which for the love of god for the love of you guys i hope that it doesn't become so where were we deregulation oh sweet mother of abnormal fiscal policy this one is a pretty big fucking doozy you guys know what deregulation is? Well, it's the reduction or elimination of government power in a particular industry. In this case, I really want to talk about banks and banking. Deregulation is usually enacted to create more competition within the industry. Over the years, the struggle between proponents of regulation and proponents of no government intervention have kind of shifted market conditions. And you know what? Reagan succeeded at deregulating several key areas of the private sector, including banks. Yep, same ones that received a huge fucking welfare check from the government to stay afloat more than one time. And this is what Reagan had to say on it, right? This bill is the most important legislation for financial institutions in the last 50 years. It provides a long-term solution for troubled thrift institutions. All in all, I think we hit the jackpot. So declared Ronald Reagan in 1982 as he signed the Garn St. Germain Depository Institutions Act. That's mouthful. He was, as it happened, wrong about solving the problems of the thrifts. On the contrary, the bill turned the modest-sized troubles of savings and loan institutions, that's SNLs, as I'll kind of call them in the future, into an utter fucking catastrophe. But he was right about the legislation's significance. And as for that jackpot, well, it finally came more than 25 years later. The form of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. 
most of the people listening to this podcast will be pretty familiar with it. Because the more one looks into the origins of the 2007-2008 Great Recession, the clearer it becomes that the key wrong turn, the turn that made the crisis inevitable, took place in the early 80s during the Reagan years. The increase in public debt, which I mentioned before, dwarfed by the rise in private debt made possible by financial deregulation. The change in America's financial rules was one of Reagan's biggest legacies, and it's the gift that keeps on taking again and again and again. It's really not pretty when you look at the numbers. In 1982, Congress passed that St. Germain Act. The legislation authorized thrifts to be to engage in commercial loans up to 10% of assets and offer a new account to compete directly with money market mutual funds. The newly expanded powers allowed thrifts to act more like a bank and less like a specialized mortgage lending institution. The financial deregulation of the early 80s was designed to benefit depository institutions, especially the thrift industry, like I said, but it also altered the composition of the market. The uh, The act removed interest rate ceilings on deposits, which removed the interest rate advantage that thrifts had held over banks. In doing so, it allowed these firms to enter into new financial territory with new risks. The thrift industry was already in distress by the end of the 70s. These savings and loan associations specialize in taking deposits in the short term and making mortgage loans in the long term. This type of asset liability mismatch made them especially vulnerable to the cost of high interest rates. With high inflation and the competitive pressure for deposits, most institutions reported large losses in the early 80s. The net worth of the entire industry approached zero from 5.3% in 80 to 0.5% in 1982. Coincidentally, that was also during a recession. Recession. I don't know why I keep saying that. The industry's deposit insurance fund, the Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation, FL, FSLIC, they didn't have shit to deal with this, with the prospect of widespread insolvency. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of these corporations just like having no money, losing all of their money. According to some estimates, bailing out all of the insolvent institutions in 83 would have cost the FSLIC around $25 billion, which is a lot. But the fund held only $6.3 billion in reserves. So in regards to that, it the, the problem had really kind of become a little bit more widespread. Uh, and it made early intervention really difficult because they didn't have any money to intervene. And they couldn't figure out, well, should we save this company or this one? They're both fuck-ups. I guess I don't get it. Um, in 81, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, the federal oversight body, had approved more lax accounting standards than generally accepted, allowing them to spread out recognition of losses over a 10-year period. This comes at a time, remember, when Reaganomics dominated the public consciousness. Regulators were urged to avoid intervention and use forbearance in private markets. Bank board supervisory structure was decentralized across several regional banks, which were owned by the institutions they oversaw. Man, really, like those, the FHLBB and the FSLIC were pretty much just doormats of the financial regulation. Really, they just, there was no supervision. 
competition was at an all-time high. The uh, competition for like real money deposits. The money people were trying to put in was just out of control. Some some institutions attracted money to them by brokering deposits at above market rates. So they were really just trying to create problems for themselves. This deregulation um, hit the banks and the, the thrifts really hard. But between 82 and 85, deposits started coming in at, as the, the recession ended and, and some money started kind of becoming available. The wealthy started putting it into and there's a huge influx of, of the wealthy spending in like mortgages and large loans and stuff. So we saw this increase between 82 and 85. I mean, really, they saw potential in the in profit and investing in investment. And they invested in condominium condominiums. God, I have trouble with that. And other commercial real estate. Right. Rich people are like, yes. It's a good idea to invest in real estate. And if we remember what happened to all of those people that invested in real estate, um, it wasn't good. <laughs> what, what it meant was because wealthier people are having more money, savings and loan associations shifted away from traditional like home mortgage loans into higher risk loans. Between 81 and 86, the percentage of saving loan asset and home mortgage loans decreased from 78 to 56%. And in the mid-80s, the real estate boom died out. That's kind of a theme, right? We see all this investment. Rates are really good. And then, well, they can't sell all that property. People stop building houses. When people stop building houses, large portions of the market die out. Think about that for a second. When you buy, or more specifically, when somebody builds a house, how much goes it like, I mean, we have the construction industry, we have um, the retail industry, uh, technology, uh, manufacturing. There's so much that goes into building a house. There's so many components to it uh, that when you see a downturn in when the housing market bursts like it did in 2007, 2008, when it bursts like it did in the mid 80s. And people aren't spending money on building new houses. That cuts off, like I said, a huge portion, a, a big amount of spending that people would be spending not only in the house, but all of the goods and all of the services that go into re that that are required for building that house. Um, the economy starts dipping. It happens every time. And by 1987, the FCLIC, you know, that one that was had like 6.3 million funds. Well, the government declared that the fund was insolvent by almost $4 billion. They overspent, and they weren't getting the money back. Well, government was like, hey, here's another $10.8 billion over the next year. Well, more institutions failed, and a few more, and more drastic action was required. In 89, President Bush signed into law a bailout plan for the savings and loan industry. The same one that Reagan was supposed to save and with the St. Germain Act of 1982. I, you know, I, I guess what I, I'm trying to say is that throughout all of this, everything that Reagan tried to do with deregulating the banks and saving the home mortgage industry fucking failed. 
and it failed catastrophically. Like it, we had the problems in the eighties and we didn't really learn from, we tried a little bit to fix them. Well, then some of these banks became so big and so troublesome. They started owing so much money that in 2007, 2008, we had the collapse. The savings and loan crisis of the 80s was undoubtedly a failure of public policy. Financial deregulation transformed the character of the industry. Institutions entered markets in which they had no experience, and a vulnerable industry expanded beyond the reach of its safety net, that money that was in the reserve. Supervision and oversight activities proved to be insufficient, and early intervention was avoided in the name of regulatory forbearance. Basically, what they're saying is, we could have saved it, but because supply-side economics were going on, they're like, fuck it, let's let them figure their own shit out, and this happened. Um, and those loopholes that were created in the 80s were never able to be fully closed, and that's when you get the troubles in the 90s, and then again, uh, early 2000s, and the, the Great Recession in 2007. By 82, for an example, SNLs were losing $4 billion a year. But in 1980, they were, they had a profit. The industry had a profit of $781 million. The Garn St. Germain Depository Institutions Act completely eliminated the interest rate cap. It also permitted banks to have up to 40% of their assets in commercial loans and 30% in consumer loans. Big fucking problem. Because commercial loans are, well, they're a lot more and they're riskier. When those fall through, you're hurt. Um, the law removed some restrictions on loan-to-value ratios. It used it permitted um, SNLs to use federally insured deposit to make those risky loans. But at the same time, Reagan cut the budgets of the regulatory staff, so they couldn't investigate the bad loans nearly as quickly as required. Well, hot damn! What do you think was going to happen? Banks also used historical accounting. They only listed the original price of real estate they bought. They only updated this price when they sold the asset. Ugh. To give you an idea, when oil prices dropped in 86, the property held by Texas SNLs also fell. But the banks kept the value on their books at the original price. That made it seem like the banks were in a better financial shape than they were. They hid the deteriorating state of their declining assets. Now, because of all of the problems we've had, banks use something called mark-to-market accounting. Uh, they update the value of their real estate assets. You know, like smart people. Despite all of the laws, in 35% of the country's SNLs weren't profitable by 83. 9% were bankrupt, and as banks went under, the, F the FSLIC ran out of money. That's what happened. Let's talk about the bailout because, you know, it's a recurring theme in uh, U.S. politics to bail out the banks. As a result of all of this, um, these problems, by the late 80s, uh, half of SNL, America's SNLs, more than 1,600, failed. So basically from 86 to 95, about half of them failed. Total loan defaults ran into the billions of dollars. Additional billions in federally insured deposits had to be covered by, by the government. To address this crisis, the, national, the nationwide economic damage it was causing, Congress enacted the Financial, financial Institutions Reform. 
Reform, Recovery, and Enforcement Act of 89, pumping some $293.3 billion into the industry. One of the most costly and extensive government bailouts of all time. Blah, 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 blah. I feel like I'm reading out of an advanced economics book or some shit. Here's the skinny. Deregulation done fucked up the American economy three separate times. Once almost putting us into a second Great Depression. Free trade is good. Sometimes. That's kind of what I have to say on that. All right. That was another long section on deregulation and just me yammering in your fucking ear hole. There's a bit more swearing today. That's because I'm tired, and when I'm tired, I swear more. So I apologize if you don't like swearing. It's not my intention to make you upset. Regardless, we're gonna get back to uh, we're gonna get back to the program in a little bit. We're gonna talk about the big one, um, the, the big problem. We're gonna talk about wage and wealth inequality. I talked about it a little bit in the beginning. But I'm going to hammer this shit home, um, and we're really going to talk about why Reaganomics is a, is a problem. Why it was a problem then, and why it's a problem now. So take these few, take this 30 seconds or so, and, uh, and enjoy it before I start depressing you. Alright, be back in a few. getting a little horse um, it was creating a problem let's look let's continue looking at Reaganomics I promise this will be the last section and hopefully I won't babble on as long as I did in the last one let's just get right to it this is probably like the this is probably going to be the hardest one to get through so I understand if you haven't made it this far if you have made it this far thanks I appreciate it um, you guys or way better listeners than I am. But let's get down to it. Accident circumstances, wage and wealth inequality in the United States, kind of really beginning in the 80s. But before I get to that, I want to go over the, well, that, that's not true. In correlation to that, what I want to go over is the Gini coefficient. Um, if you don't know what the Gini coefficient is, look it up, pretty cool. But here is the down low. Gini index or the Gini coefficient is a way to measure the distribution of um, of wealth. It's developed by an Italian guy, um, Corrado Gini, in 1912. It's often used to gauge economic inequality, measuring income distribution, uh, or less commonly, wealth distribution among a population. It ranges from zero to one or zero percent to 100 percent with zero representing a perfect perfectly equal uh, and one representing perfect inequality to give you guys an idea even like hunter gatherers that we that we think of don't 
represent at at zero. They're like at a ten. Um, there's still inequality among hunter gatherers. Some people still have more of the stuff. It just happens naturally. Um, other people have less of the stuff. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're any less happy. Sometimes, yeah, that's just how it is. So there we go, zero to one. Here's what we got going on. The, the higher the number, remember the lower the number. The lower the number, the more equal. The higher the number, the, the less equal. Really what the numbers say is that around the, the late 70s, the United States was around like 0. 0.33, 0. 0.35. Um, so, I mean, that's a fairly, fairly unequal society. But in the 80s, and it, it had been pretty stable there for a while, right? It hadn't really been moving much. In the 80s, that started to creep up, point, point three six, point three eight, point three nine. By the end of the 80s, you're looking at, you know, point four, which is, I mean, 5% uh, on the scale is pretty significant. And, and you can see that if you were to look at my website, uh, that's historyuncensoredpod.com. Un, unabashed, unshamed plug right there. Check it out. Because it's definitely going to have more of like the hard data that I'm looking at here for you guys. That really goes over everything. But the Gini coefficient, suffice it to say, it measures inequality. And during the 80s, you saw you started seeing this trend of it going up and up and up and up. And it's been kind of continuing on that trend ever since. So in this matter that, that needs our attention in the long run, this distribution of income and wealth in general in the general theory, Keynes, remember, I, um, Keynesian theory, I talked about this earlier, so, um, supply and demand. It says that two major problems of modern capitalism were, first, it's an inability to provide full employment for its people all the time, and second, the extremes of inequality in the distribution of income and wealth. And we're really just starting to do research into this latter problem. The amount of data that I was able to to get a hold of uh, for this section of the podcast is absolutely ludicrous. So I want you guys to do your own research into wealth inequality and clap back at me with what you found. Uh, I'm really interested to see maybe what else, what other you know quantifiable data you guys came up with because I, I don't know. I find it interesting. Maybe you do too. Let's talk about the widening racial wage gaps the widening of racial wage gaps since 79 is characterized by three distinct periods of change expansion during the 80s and then we saw some improvement in the 90s where it started getting better and then since 2000 we've seen an expansion while there are multiple causes discrimination has constantly played a major role so what i'm saying is Although Reagan sounded good in saying, yeah, I want equality among all people and all races and no bigotry, the numbers don't back that up. The real wages, uh, uh, these, are, these are numbers, right? The real wages of uh, white and black people, um, 79 to 89. 1979, in the 10th percentile, the lowest percentile, white people were making $9.24 per hour. Blacks were making $8.90 per hour. That's not so bad. That that wage gap that wage gap isn't terrible. By 1989, so that was 3.6%. By 1989, 
white people were making $8.08 per hour. Okay, well, damn. They See what I'm saying? How the, the lowest percentile really got fucked by Reaganomics? 924, 1979, 1989, $8.08. They were making, I mean, a and two tenths less than they were. I mean, that's 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 ludicrous, right? A dollar and eight cents, 1989. In, and that was for white people. Black people, 1979, $8.90. $1989, $7.20. The wage gap increased 7.2%. That means, right? That's all I can say about it. And that's for the lowest percentile. Well, say, Seth, well, what about, you know, like the 50th percentile? Well, the wage gap for the lowest percentile was the best, right? In 1989, 10.8%. That seems like a lot. Well, when you get to the 50th percentile um, for those ethnicities, white people in the 50th percentile were making $16.89 in 1979. In 89, they were making $16.79. Again, lower. People made less money in the 80s at least the lower 50% made less money in the 80s than they did in the 70s, which is pretty crazy. Well, blacks went from making $13.89 to $13.45%. $13.45. Almost a 20% wage gap. Oh, I mean, the same can't be held true for the top percentages, right? Well, top percentage in 1989, 23.9. Top percentage in... 1989 for that was for the 95 the 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 average i should say was 20.9 percent basically since 1979 you've seen an increase in wage inequality among all of the percentiles every one of them fuck that black people are getting poorer which is bullshit in order to determine whether the distribution of wealth uh, of wealths in American society uncovers uh, deeper fault lines of inequality income alone. Data from the 84 survey of income program participation is examined. Findings indicate the aggregate, the total shares of wealth by households are distributed far more unevenly than income shares with extreme concentrations at the upper levels. The data on wealth shows that the condition of black America is far more precarious, marginalized and unequal than was thought previously. Single and separated women hold few assets in comparison with their male counterparts. Between 79 and 85, the main sources of expansion of black-white wage gaps among new entrant men and women were worsening in discrimination and or growing differences in unobserved skills. And the decline in relatively good-paying jobs for workers with less than a college degree. And between, at same time, 79 to 85, racial wage gaps widened most in the Midwest and among men working in manufacturing. Guys, this is like I didn't make this shit up. This is this is all true. It's all it's all right here. Um this study that I just quoted from was was done in the 80s. They said, "Hey, government, black people have a problem. They're being royally fucked." And the government literally did nothing to help them. If anything, the wage gap and wealth inequality continued to get worse between white and black people since then. Right? 1989, 
the end of and, and it really started in the 80s like it, it was pretty pretty steady up until this point the, the the wage gap wasn't all that bad and it was still there which is a problem but starting in the 80s you go basically from 18 percent average wage gap between white and black people um, across all percentiles and then in 2015 we're up to 26.7 percent that's not getting smaller that's getting bigger we think that we're becoming less discriminatory we think we aren't institutionally racist here in the united states and i'm here to call us out that's utter bullshit i I mean those are those are lies that we cannot be feeding into so that was the wage gap between white and blacks the second matter that needs our attention in the long run is the distribution of income and wealth it's really depressing to see that it was we saw it in the 80s and have done literally nothing to stop it not surprising considering my first episode um but let's look into another problem that is really bad right now, and that's the student debt crisis. And sweet fucking government, Jesus, ugh, that started in the 80s too. Can you believe it? At this point, you probably can um, because it, it, this, it just doesn't seem to stop. It started in the 80s. You bet your fucking ass it did. The deeper I look into Reagan's administration and the entire mishandling of government um the united states the angrier i get reagan is seen as some sort of conservative hero but in my estimation he only created problems huge fucking problems that we have to deal with now we've had to deal with in the past and we're still dealing with so post-recession in the early 80s state government pretty much decided that they were going to leave the federal government to fund a college And that didn't go well because Nitwit Reagan was in office and this fucker right here wanted to completely get rid of the Department of Education. Can you believe that shit? Now because of these funding issues, tuition costs are insane and the total amount of student debt in the United States is over one and a half trillion freaking dollars. Excuse me, I have to take a drink of water. The fuck? And states. I'm not just laying the blame only at Reagan's feet. But during this recession, states just basically decided, you know what, we, we we don't need to spend money on education. That would that would make too much sense. Here's what's going on. Action is needed in the area of taxation. If the budget is to be brought under control, there's no alternative than to increase in taxes. It's a disgrace that a nation as wealthy as the United States refuses to pay for what it wants including spending for defense and spending for social programs there's no alternative to higher taxes because even with cutbacks in military spending the deficit is so large that it cannot be handled by that means alone so if we want to get the the deficit under control we're going to need to increase in taxes yeah that sucks but that's because of all the problems that we've created it won't be easy to do um, especially going given that we just went through you know, uh, another tax reform recently that again only really helped out the wealthy. It is not well known to the general public, but legislation already exists to do this in a ba- in the Balanced Growth and Employment Act of 1979. 
the Humphrey-Hawkins bill, which in effect mandated an employment policy that would get the unemployment rate down to the typical working male, the unemployment rate down for the typical working male who heads a household to 3% and to 4% for every other unemployed person. This legislation has a big loophole in it, permitting the president to say, in effect, that conditions are such that we cannot achieve full employment, allowing it, therefore, to be postponed. Beginning with Carter and continuing through Reagan, the, the presidents had just simply ignored it, saying it's not attainable. So there's that. I mean, right? Student student debt, uh, government spending is out of control, and deregulation caused problems, and um, we're becoming more unequal um, in our wealth, and it really just all started in the 80s everything all of the graphs and charts that i've collected like it's obvious you just see dips in right before reagan and then you start seeing huge increases that start in the 80s and then continue through today um, it's a problem inequality well on a downswing prior to reagan's administration started to take a drastic turn regardless of the data that we look at or interpret the 80s was a time of economic change. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and blacks got imprisoned, and they got poorer. I can no longer take a back seat when someone brings up Reaganomics because according to the near, seemingly near infinite amount of hard data, it doesn't work for everyone. When I say everyone, I mean a majority of the population saw their wealth and assets decline. We saw a huge. We saw during the '80s. We saw huge swaths of um, private loans. Uh, as I said, we became a huge debtor nation. We started spending money we didn't have. That's so dumb, and it's still happening today. I mean, we, we're still spending so much money that we don't have. Um, most of the assets that we think we own, we really don't. We say tuition increase and incarceration increase and private debt went insane and deregulating banks led to two of the largest recessions in the history of the United States. Our GNP growth was marginal and showed no real advantage over most presidencies, which is the truest measure of a society's economic standing. Well, fuck me if it isn't a problem. Jobs were created. That's because, as I said, women entered the workforce. Families could no longer survive on a single income especially for families below 50%, the 50% mark. Numbers tell us what we want to hear. I looked at this from, I thought, just about every angle I possibly could. I have seen and I have seen correlating evidence to support a strong economy. It was an economy that was doomed to fail and will fail again if we keep trying these draconian policies. Reagan and his economic policy stripped the power away from the people. His policies didn't just decrease our buying and economic power, they decreased our political power. Money now flows into politics. It takes more and more money to run or to be a member of a political party, left or right. I hope you guys come to the website again. That's History Uncensored Pod. Check out the sources that I have. But all in all, in this episode, we learned about Reagan's failed economics policies. For next week, we're going to continue going over Reagan, and that one will probably be way more interesting than this one, but I did have to get this one out of the way. Um, next time on Remembering Reagan, History's Idiots, we'll be discussing corruption and scandals um, and law. 
I'm going to be talking about his cabinet and administration um, and how it was the most corrupt in history. And uh, I'm really on a mission to expose it for what it was. When I, As I said in the first episode, I was told to look at Reagan. Um, and my knowledge of Reagan, it was probably pretty cursory, very similar to I'm sure what all of your knowledge, what everybody who's listening knowledge of Reagan is and was. Um, I didn't expect to find what I found, or at least to the levels that I did. Uh, and it's really disheartening. And um, I don't know, when when you start seeing these untruths, you know, propagated online, it, it bothers me as a person and it should bother you guys. Um, but it is what it is, right? So this has been an episode of History Uncensored with me, as always, your host, Seth Michaels. I look forward to your feedback. Rate and review the show wherever you can. Um, it really helps me more than you know. And if you subscribe and you listen, um, all of those things help me out in the Internet of Things, those magic algorithms that that place where my show is and so on and so forth. So if you like it, share it. If you don't, I understand. If you don't like it or you're upset about any of the data that I had, message me and I will get you um, the source for that information. As always, you guys, uh, if you have suggestions for future topics or you just want to stop by and chat with me, you can find me on Twitter at Seth4Nerds. Or you can email me at contact at historyuncensoredpod.com. Other than that, you guys are the fucking best. I appreciate the support, and as as always, history remembers. Thank you. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another <laughs>